It's uh, good to be with you. And if you have a Bible, could you turn to Matthew chapter 19? Matthew chapter 19. We've been in this series, Reach, now for a few weeks, and we're looking at how Jesus shared the gospel with people, how, how Jesus reached people. How did he tell them the good news of what God has done for us? And the idea behind this series is that we can learn from the way he did that. And so far, we've been mainly focusing on things that Jesus did that we can learn from that, when we do them, mainly make people feel good about ourselves and make, make people like us. So we, when you say that you're praying for somebody, as we did in week one, most people are kind of quite happy about that. Um, they probably don't get angry about it. When you invite them to something, most people are like, oh, okay. When you eat with people, who doesn't like eating? But this week, we're going to look at something that when you do it, doesn't always meet with such a warm response. And that is, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus also confronted people. He confronted people. He, until now, we've focused on where, areas where Jesus has been incredibly nice to people. But Jesus spent a lot of his time, if you know him, there was an edge to him. He spent a lot of his time challenging people and making provocative comments and asking annoying questions that get under the skin of people and expose things in their hearts. He told these subversive stories that turn the world upside down and make people who think they're heroes feel like villains and villains heroes and said things like the, the first will be last and those sorts. He's often doing it. He did things that made people angry and they crucified him. You know, if we imagine Jesus simply as the sort of fluffy, eternal, nice vicar who just walks around and goes, hello, hello, isn't it nice to be here? Yes, oh, lovely, oh, hello. You wouldn't have a dead version of that guy. That's how the story ends, though, isn't it? He's savagely killed by the empire because he, what he says makes people angry. And I was just challenged by a comment made by a, an Anglican bishop that I heard a few years ago. He said, wherever Paul went, there was a riot. Wherever I go, they serve tea. And I thought, he's kind of joking, but it's true as well, isn't it? That actually, it can't be that Christianity is simply a list of people just being nice to people. There, there must be something about what Jesus said and did that got him killed, and something that he said and did that was likely to make people upset about what he said. And that was the fact that he confronted people. He, wherever he went, he told people hard truths. And in doing that, their hearts were exposed, and often they did not like it very well. So he, he proclaimed the kingdom with teeth. And we're going to learn from him about how he did that, because obviously when you use the word confront, it can give images of people angrily shouting at people or picking up a megaphone and telling everyone they're going to hell or something. And that's not the heart of this at all, but we do need to learn how to do it. We need to see that Jesus did it and understand both why and how he did it, because we're called to be a bit like that ourselves. So let's read from Matthew chapter 19 and beginning at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, oh, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a, person, a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God. Jesus is the worst salesman in the world. Right? If Jesus is trying to get people to buy what he's selling, in fact, in this case, he's not even doing that. He is trying to tell somebody who says he wants to buy what Jesus is selling, and he still doesn't close the sale. He's the worst salesman in the world. I can imagine a sales coach using this call for training and quality purposes. You know, that, that voiceover you get when you ring up. A I can imagine someone using this and saying, this is a case study in how not to be a salesman. Because Jesus begins with a captive audience. The guy comes up, verse 16, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's like you're a fridge salesman and someone comes up and says, I'd really like to buy a fridge. How much is it? Right? Anybody who can't close a sale on a fridge with that opening question really ought to be doing something else. But that's what happens in this story, right? Jesus doesn't, in that sense, get the sale. He's an, he's an open book. He's a, ready to basically buy whatever. But Jesus, instead of saying, oh, this is what you do, immediately challenges him. He starts with a mild rebuke to the question itself. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And the, the sales coach is on the end of the phone going, what the heck was that? That was a terrible story. What on earth are you doing? You've just antagonized the customer. That's the last thing you want to do. And then Jesus answers the question, but he raises the price. The young man has said, what good deed must I do? And Jesus says, keep the commandments, plural. So it's like, it's yeah, a little bit more than you think. And the guy on the end of the phone is going, hmm, this doesn't sound like a great strategy. And then the young man says, well, which ones? And Jesus says, well, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, all of them. So he's raising the price each time the guy comes back to him. And the guy on the end of the, the training guy is just going, oh, facepalm, this is terrible. I, let's go back to beginning, to basics here. The young man, though, incredibly, is still interested. He really, really wants the kingdom. So he comes back again and says, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? And now the guys go, do you know what, this guy Jesus, we may yet be able to save your sales career, but at this point, having bungled the first two encounters, you now really just need to make it easy. Lower the cost, slowly, slowly reel him in, work it and all that. And Jesus doesn't do that at all. He says, if you'd be perfect, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, then come and follow me. What the What? What are you doing? And then the young man hears this and it says, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So not only has Jesus given this very unusual sales approach, it hasn't even worked. So until that point, you might say, well, no, it's all right. Jesus is just going to use this quirky, creative, you know, let's make this thing look desirable by saying how expensive it is. And then at the last minute, you know, you can have it for less. Maybe that's what he'll do, but that's not what happens. The young guy leaves and doesn't follow Jesus. And as far as we know, never does. And that's where the 
sales coach says, this is now going to be my, you are now my case study, Jesus of Nazareth. You're the worst salesman in the world. I'm going to be trading on this for the rest of my sales coaching career. No wonder you only had 120 followers when you died, even though you were God. Rubbish, right? This is terrible sales. Because Jesus is not trying to sell him something. He's not schmoozing him. He's confronting him. He's not making it easier. He's making it harder. He's raising the cost of discipleship until the rich young man realizes there is a price that he is not prepared to pay. And he has to say, like the dragons, I'm out. Yeah, This is too much for me. I can't afford it. I value something else more than the kingdom of God, and I'm not prepared to give it up. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to reveal to him by challenging him in this way. So the young man has to walk away. And Jesus says, look guys, look at this case study. How hard, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than that. If you're trying to get someone to sign on the dotted line, Jesus is terrible as an example to follow. But Jesus isn't doing that. He's not, we know that from because of this story. He's not trying to get someone to buy. He's trying to call people to die. It's totally different. He's not saying, here is a product I have that will make your life more convenient. He's saying, you are going to have to die to your life and you're going to find it incredibly inconvenient. But when you do, you will find something that's so good, it will make it worth it. And sometimes that requires confronting people. Now, in a moment, we're going to ask how we do that. Because there is obviously a risk that some people on hearing this will think that this is basically the preacher giving complete license to go, I'm going to pick up my evangelistic bazooka, walk into the office and boom, blow the head off that guy who always annoyed me or whatever it is. And that's not at all my heart. That's not what I would do, sharing the gospel. And it's certainly not what we would want to do as a church. But before we ask how we do it, we need to get our head heads around why. Why is it an important thing to do to confront people with some of the different... Why, why can't we just do the nice, positive, sunny stuff? Why do we need to confront people? And I think there are probably two big reasons that emerge in this story. And the first is because of the reality of sin, which is not a word most of us like or like to use very often. But people don't really like thinking about sin. In fact, we're, many of us are Christians. Many of us in this room have been in Christian circles for many years, and we still don't really like thinking and talking about sin very much, even though we've probably sung songs about it already this morning. But most people in this city don't like thinking about sin at all. That's not a word that people like using, except in a jokey sort of way. What people want to believe is not that they are sinners who need saving. They want to believe, and this is Richard Nyberg's phrase, he's a 20th century theologian, they want to believe that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's what people want. Yeah, They want the good bits and not the diff- They don't want the hard edge of it. But that's what Jesus came to bring. But we don't want to hear that. We don't want to believe in sin or judgment or hell. We don't want to repent. We think we're fine. And so a big part of what Jesus is doing with this young man is to reveal to him, you're not fine. And the way he does that is by showing him that there is actually something very wrong in his heart because there is something that he values far more than the kingdom. And he's never even noticed that. You notice how this young guy thinks he's fine, don't you? Because Jesus says to him, keep the commandments. And he goes... I have. Or he actually initially says, which ones? And Jesus listens to him and he goes, I've done all of them. And imagine his mum somewhere just going, really? You've always kept the commandment, you will love your neighbor as yourself? That's an amazing claim. This young man thinks he's fine. So do a lot of people in this part of London. 
Yeah, a lot of us think we, that's what we all do in ourselves, isn't it? We think, I'm fine. I'm a good person. I'm okay. And so Jesus has to try and confront this young man with the reality, no, you are not fine. There is something wrong with you that you don't notice, which is that you have another God. You have something else that ultimately you've built your entire life around, which in your case, maybe in yours as well, but in this man's case, is money and your possessions. And if that was taken away, your life would lose meaning. And I want you to see that, because if you don't see it, you won't realize you need saving. It's like the monkey with um, his hand caught in the jar. You ever seen this where there's a, a large nut at the bottom of a glass jar, and the monkey's hand is small enough to get in, but it's not small enough to get out while holding the nut. So the monkey puts his hand in, picks up the nut, wraps it around like this, and then it gets his hand stuck in the jar. So it's trying to get the, monkey, the nut out, and it can't work it out. It drops the nut, the hand comes out. And the monkey goes, oh, I'm fine. And then, but then it goes, oh, I want the nut. And it puts the hands back in again. And he's trying to hold the nut and pull it out, but it can't. And so the monkey is faced with the existential choice that we all face, which is, do I care more about the nut or freedom? That's what it has to There's a monkey having to make that decision. Probably doesn't quite articulate it in that way. But that's what's going on in its head and in its heart. Do I want the, and it wants the nut. And it tries to keep the nut. Like, I want both. I want both. And the experiment's designed to show the monkey, you can't have both. Which one will you choose? The rich young man doesn't think he has a problem with sin. So Jesus shows him, there is a nut in your life, my friends. There is a nut. There is, your possessions are of such a scale and of such an importance to you that you find it very difficult to imagine the idea of being, part of the, of being able to give it all up, even if that's the cost of being part of the kingdom. So I will make you choose between following me and all of your possessions. I'm going to say it so starkly that you're going to have to sell all of it and give it all away to the poor. I don't think, as we see in the rest of the New Testament, that's not always what Jesus tells people. In fact, it often isn't. But in this man's case, it is. He needs to know, this for you is the thing you're looking to save you. This is the thing you are care more about than anything else. And you need to drop that nut because it has become your God. It is the thing you can't live without. And I'm going to make you choose. I was talking about this with my son the other day. That just last night, we're sitting on the sofa talking about, and not because of this message, and it came up in another context about idols. He's 10. And we're just talking about, like, what is that for you? What's the thing in your life, do you think, where you go, that's the thing I find hardest to give up if God tells me I need to? And my son is very aware of these things. He knows exactly what it is. like, that's football. Yeah, that's, you're a 10-year-old boy. That's football. Like that, and if I do find, he even said to me, he said, I do find it really hard to love Jesus more than football, which was a lovely thing to say. I was like, yeah, I, can, I know. And then I started talking to him about what are those things in my life or what would the risk be of those things in my own life? Where, where am I tempted to put something else? Where, what's my nut? All right, it's a challenging, challenging story um, I read a while back from a, a woman called Rosaria Butterfield, who was a lesbian woman studies professor at an American university. She uh, was living with her lesbian lover. I think it was before gay marriage was legal, but to, to all intents and purposes, she was functioning like a, a gay, you know, permanent gay couple. She is a women's studies professor, which means that if you become a Christian, then you're probably not going to be able to carry on believing what you believe as a women's studies professor at an American university, and you're certainly going to uh, lose your relationship, as she had as well. And she starts exploring Christianity, because this guy is witnessing to her, a, a vicar, is sharing the gospel with her. And she begins to think, I think there's something in this. I think this might be true. And she tells the story beautifully as a way of exploring the tension she feels as she's going, I am going to have to choose 
between my whole life, everything. Because if I become a Christian, I'm probably not just going to lose my lesbian lover. and my, I'm going to lose my home, my social community and network and not going to be very pleased about this either. And I'm going to lose my job because I'm not going to carry on doing that and follow Jesus in the same way. And so she's describing the book in this very interesting description. And interestingly, while she's weighing it up, another minister comes into her life and he says to her, oh no, you don't have to choose. You can have both. And she says, she makes an amazing line, she says, he told me that I could have Jesus and my lesbian lover. And this was a very appealing prospect. And then she says, but by this point I had been reading and rereading the scriptures. And I started to realize that there was no such both and available in Christianity. In the end, she concludes, I am going to follow Jesus. He is worth it for all that's going to cost me. And so she does. And she ends up losing not just her lesbian relationship and her home, but her social community, she loses her job, she ends up having to move state, and the final line, she, she finishes this beautiful line, she just says, I lost everything except the dog. That's what it cost, that's what my nut was, it was everything in my life except my dog I lost to follow Jesus. And I tell that story just because that's another example, but it's a very powerful one of what this looks like, and what the nut can be for people. For the rich young ruler, it's money, for her, it's a sexual relationship, and for many people in our society, it might be one of those, but it might be something else. It might be football, it might be goodness knows what for you, but the point is, you need to, Jesus confronted her and confronts us and confronts this man with the reality of what it will cost him to follow Jesus. And that you have to do that because of the reality of sin. The second reason why confronting people sometimes is important is due to the reality not just of sin, but of suffering. I know this is all very cheery. Um, great, let's talk about sin and suffering. Sorry about that. But in fact, no, I'm not sorry because this is exactly what we're trying to do in this series is to say these are the things that we have to put before people. But in sales, you see, you're, you're generally saying you're suffering. We don't talk, talk like this. If you're a salesperson today, I doubt you do this particular line. But you're basically saying this product will alleviate your suffering. It'll make it, make it easier. Right? Buy this fridge. Buy this iPhone, buy this, whatever it might be, because it will mean your life will be more convenient and comfortable. Yeah? And if you're a good salesperson, you genuinely believe in your product. So you're actually able to say with integrity, this will make your life better. But of course, Christians are not doing that. Jesus is not doing that. He's not saying this thing, the kingdom of God, will make your life more convenient and comfortable. He's saying this thing will lead to everlasting joy, but in the short term, it might make your life less convenient and less comfortable. Are you still interested? And you have to put the reality of suffering in the mix for people because otherwise they won't know that what they're taking on, and this happened to some of you. When some of you were coming to faith, you needed somebody, you wanted somebody to say, this is actually what it's going to cost. And if you've been, you might have been on the receiving end of someone who didn't do that, and someone said, no, you follow Jesus and everything will be great. And this will be all work and, and then you came to realize that wasn't true and you felt angry with the way that you were led up the garden path on the issue. And there is, it is a responsibility on us to put before people the reality in that sense of suffering. I was in northern Nigeria a few years ago, and I met a young man from a Muslim background. His name was Shaib, and he had converted to Christianity. And as he's telling us his testimony, he says, yeah, basically, when I told my family that I was going to follow Jesus now, I, was, I literally had my clothes pulled off me, and I was chased down the street with wire, like being hit with barbed wire, as I was running down the street by my brothers. I ran literally in, at night, ran out of the house without my clothes, and I've never seen them again. 
And that sort of story is not unique to him at all, right? There are many parts of the world in which that would still be the reality. And in some ways, that, of course, as you're hearing that, you're just so humbled. You think, oh, my goodness, being a Christian here is so easy in comparison. And yet you don't get that part mainly to go, oh, I must feel awful about myself. You hear it and you think, I have a lot to learn about the cost of following Jesus. But this young man got that whole lesson in the first 10 minutes of his Christian life. Some of us, we learn it. It just takes many years to figure out what it actually costs to follow Jesus. And if you read your New Testament from cover to cover, you will conclude over and over again with the apostles. They talk a lot about suffering and the cost of following Jesus. And Jesus and the apostles want to be very clear how much you're taking on in terms of suffering if you want to follow him. For you, it might cost you, no, I say no more than, but it can be costly. It might cost you a habit. It might cost you a, a person. It might cost you a sexual relationship. It might cost you money. It might cost you time or whatever it might, a hobby. I don't know, but it's no use winning people with a glossy pitch and then they find the small print and they go, what? No one told me that. Be honest about the cost. My friend, who is a pastor, um, took his son crab fishing. This isn't a preacher story. This is a real story. Right? This really happened. So he takes his son crab fishing. Crab fishing, you go and sit on a harbor, uh, harbor wall often um, on the south coast and take a, you know, a long piece of string and you attach a piece of bait to the bottom of the piece of string and you dangle it off the harbor wall into the water and crabs come and try and eat it and then you wheel up the, the string and then you put the crab in the bucket. And at the end, because you don't want to really eat them, you take them all back in again. But it's a nice thing to do with a kid. And my friend does this, and he says to his son, right, we'll go and get the nicest piece of fish we can find, because that's what they thought you do. And so they went to this fish shop, and they get a piece of salmon. It's beautiful, delicious, pink, ah, right? They, they thought, actually, it even looks tempting for me. And chop it up, and then tie a bit around the end of the string, and dangle it down into the water. And instantly, crabs are just appearing out of nowhere. They're like, I didn't even know these many crabs were here. They're all swarming around it, and they're all trying to get on top of the salmon and to eat it. And they, as they start to pick at it, and I don't know quite how, you know, but with the kind of claws like this. And gradually, the salmon, because salmon's not a very robust fish, it just flakes away, just dis- disintegrates. And so by the time they've actually pulled the string all the way back up again, there's no crabs on it. They're like, well, that wasn't very successful. They do that a few times, it doesn't work. And then they go back to the same fish shop. And they say to the guy, could you give us the mankiest, rubberiest piece of squid that you have. And the guy says, well, strangely, we don't get a lot of requests for that. So yeah, sure, here it is. And they tie the piece of string around that, and they go back to the harbor wall, and they dangle that down, and the crabs are not interested. Right? Most of the crabs are just like, I tried this in the first meeting. I don't know how crabs swim. I know they walk sideways, but do they also... S- I'm assuming that they're doing this. But anyway, there's a piece of string that they're not really interested in that. And they're all swimming away. And then one of them goes, actually, yeah, I will have a little nibble on that. And they do. And they go, oh, do you know what? I'm going to stay for this. So most of the crabs ignore it. But one of them then attaches to it. And they find, yeah, okay, we can pull it back up again. And they've caught the crab. And then they put it back. And then a few minutes. And then another one. And then another one. And they get a whole bucket full of crabs fishing with squid. And the analogy, I hope, is obvious that you can go fishing, evangelistically speaking, with a very shiny, glossy, attractive picture that flakes away into nothingness when people actually get it. Or you can go fishing with something that might well make a lot of people saying, I don't really want a piece of that. But when they do, they stick. And Jesus was one, at, he was one for fishing with squid. You read this story again with that in mind. You, think, you read John 6. Right, where Jesus has got a huge crowd, one of the biggest, one of the most successful movement starters ever, with this massive crowd on a hillside. And Jesus says to them, If you want to follow me, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Which doesn't sound very nice to you, it sounds very bad to a Jewish person in the first century. 
And it says, from that time on, most no longer followed him. In the end, there are only 12 of them left. And Jesus says to them, what about you? Are you going to leave as well? And they say to him, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Most of the crabs just go, I don't want that. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. No, I've got, some, I've got better stuff over here. There's a piece of salmon over there someone else is offering. But the ones who take hold of the offer of the kingdom, seeing it for what it truly is and what it will cost them, they stick. They say, where else can we go? You have the words of life. And in the same way, you and I, we need to be honest with people. And I, by the way, if you're not a Christian here today, which I know a number of us aren't, I need to be honest with you. Because there's plenty of glossy presentations of Christianity out there. The reality, everlasting joy is available, it's glorious and beautiful, and I would never for a moment give up Jesus for all the, everything in the world. But I must also tell you that the short-term implications in your life can be very disruptive and it will cost you a great deal. In fact, it will cost you everything. Jesus is worth it, but it will cost you everything. And we need to be honest with people about the reality of sin and the reality of suffering and then show both with our words and our actions that he is worth it anyway. And that's, of course, what Jesus does. Which I hope is, I hope you can see then why we need to confront people. But the question then has to be, how do you do that, given that it's all too easy to be a finger-jabbing, shouty, angry person? Um, how do you confront people well? And I think that, that in many ways, like with everything else in this series, the answer is we look to Jesus and see how did he do it. And there's a lovely line in Mark's version of this story, which we don't get in Matthew. We just read Matthew, but in the same story in Mark, there's a lovely line in Mark 10, 21, which really helps us on this. And Jesus, Mark says, looking at him, the same young man, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Jesus looking at him, loved him. I thought, love that phrase, because even though I know Jesus loves everybody, I love that the, Mark is trying to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus' challenge to this guy is not based out of a dislike out of, for him, quite the opposite. It's because Jesus loves him enough to tell him the truth that he says what he says. All right? You can confront people because you... That's often not what makes me, in my sin, confront people. I might confront people because I want to be right, or because I want to win, or because I'm angry, I just want to vent about something, or I don't want to look stupid, or I feel like someone has insulted someone in my tribe or my group. And if you don't believe that those things are things, just go on Twitter. That's what Twitter is. It's basically a website formed by, and I'm on it myself, but that's, it's formed by people doing that, confronting each other, not really out of love for the person that they might hear something good for them, but that people are angry for other reasons. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does this. He confronts this guy not because he's proud or angry, but because he loves him and he wants to show him. And so this is what we do too. We confront people because we love people enough, as I do with my 10-year-old son. Yeah, you're right. That is the idol in your life. And I have to tell you that because I love you enough to tell you that Jesus is worth giving it up for. But it is going to cost you. I love you so much. I want you to drop the nuts. And I'm like with my... I don't use that image with my 10-year-old. I don't think he'd get it yet. But I'm like, I love you so much, I want you to drop the nuts. I don't want you to be forced to think that you're going to keep your hands stuck in the jar forever. I want you to find the freedom that comes from letting it go, but you do have to let it go. Ephesians calls it speaking the truth in love. And I just, three or four examples of what this might look like in practice for you, okay? And how you do this. I was in Cafe Nero about a year ago and bumped into a, a guy who I'd known a few years before and he had been globetrotting, you know, gone traveling the world with his girlfriend and he's a really nice, lovely, lovely guy. He was about 30, 10 years younger than me and he'd been off traveling and we're chatting about how it had gone and how he was now and he said, yeah, we had all these amazing experiences 
boiling a long conversation down, he, he basically said, the thing is, I got back to England, and I now just don't really feel very at home. I don't really feel very settled. I haven't really found what I wanted. Like, everywhere I went, there was loads of new experiences, but I'm kind of a bit lost now. And I don't, he didn't say that, but I'm kind of a bit stuck, and I don't really know. To be honest, I'm thinking what I might do is go traveling again. And I looked at him and loved him. Like, I, really, I thought, oh, you're such a good guy. I'm such a nice person. I want to tell you the truth. And I said to him, again, summary of the conversation, I said, Chris, you, are, you and I are not big enough to be the sun in our own solar system. Right? You are a little, you and I, none of us are. We're not big enough, weighty enough, strong enough to be at the center of all things for ourselves. In fact, we don't find happiness that way. If you make yourself the center of everything, it never works. What you have to do, you're a tiny little planet, and you have to find something huge and weighty and glorious and build your whole life around that. And the bigger and more weighty and more glorious that thing is, the more likely you are to find joy and happiness. Otherwise, you just become a little moon that thinks it's the be-all and end-all, and you never find joy that way. You are living life as if you are the sun, and you're not. None of us are. God is the sun. You have to build your life around him. Now, I don't know if at that point he actually... I don't know. He was very nice about it, but I don't know whether he went away sorrowful for he had great travel plans. I don't know. Or whether actually he's come to conclude that what I said was true and given up everything to follow Jesus. I don't know. I haven't seen him since. But actually, I know that. Ultimately, I can't control that, but I'm responsible to put in front of him the truth. So that would be one example. A more combative example, which I just like because it's kind of a funny story, but J. John, the evangelist, if you know him, he's preached the gospel to tens of thousands of people now um, over a 30 or so year career. Um, But he became a Christian from a totally non-Christian background because a guy came up to him at the lunch counter at university and said, gave him a copy of John's gospel and said, read this. If you read it, I'll talk to you. If you don't read it, I'm sorry, I won't have time to talk to you. And just walked off. That was that. Now, that is a confrontation that I wouldn't do, but I was like, wow, that's another way of speaking the truth in love. He read it twice that night. The whole of John's Gospel, beginning to end, twice in a row, became a Christian. Now, may or may not work for you, but I just throw it out there. Another example of loving confrontation. Um, A uh, university professor in the States called Dr. Leach has two young women in his class who, instead of doing what they were qualifying to do in their master's program, conclude that what God is leading them to do, through contact with him, they conclude we should go and be missionaries. And one of the sets of parents is furious. And they come to his office and they say, you have just led our daughter away from the whole thing we've been investing in her for. And they said, we wanted our daughter to get a master's degree to get something in the bank, to get some security. Look at what you've done to her. And he said... This is loving confrontation, right? He said, we're all on a little ball of rock called Earth, and we're spinning along through space at zillions of miles an hour. And even if we don't run into anything, eventually we're all going to die, and a giant trapdoor is going to open up underneath us, and we will fall either into the everlasting arms of God or absolute nothingness. And you think that getting a master's degree is going to get her some security. That's a strong confrontation, right? But you can say that if you love people and your, your heart is, I want you to see what it costs you. I want you to see how much you need to hear the truth about what Jesus means for you. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate example. Looking at him, he loved him and said, you lack one thing. Sell everything, then follow me. Those are very different confrontation stories. But in each one, they love the, you love the person more than the outcome. Don't you? You love the person more than the outcome. And it's not ultimately on you whether they decide to repent or not. And that's what sounds hard, right? Because you then hear all of those stories and you think, wow, if Jesus preaching the gospel to this young man still didn't get the guy to respond, what hope have I got? This is Jesus and he still didn't respond. That's really hard. 
And that's what the disciples, of course, are saying in verse 25. What, who can be saved then if this man isn't? And Jesus says, yeah, that's exactly the point. This is impossible. It's not difficult. Getting people to repent, drop the nut, follow Jesus, that's not difficult. It's impossible. It can't be done, humanly speaking. And then Jesus says, but with God, all things are possible. Yeah, if you are hearing this and thinking, hang on a second, you're telling me that my friend has to give up this, 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 and this if they want to follow Jesus and be prepared to, I mean, Jesus gives a lot of it back in his grace often, but be prepared to renounce all things and die for their faith. Is that honestly what you're telling me? What hope have I got of getting them to listen? Jesus says, oh, you, that's, that's not even the half of it. It's not hard. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Brothers and sisters, that is fantastic news. Our responsibility, yours, is not to seal the deal or close the sale or even save the soul. Your responsibility is to speak the words that God has spoken and the things that God has done to the people that God has created, lovingly but clearly confronting them if necessary, and then entrust their salvation to the God of the impossible. That's all you can do. And many of us in this room, like Peter and like the Twelve at this point, have experienced the saving grace of God. And we've left everything to follow him. And we say, like Peter does, what will we have then? And Jesus says, oh, everybody who's left things for me will be, have them restored a hundredfold in the age to come. You will get many times more than you've given up eternally. Hallelujah. But for those of us who are still weighing that up, let me simply say this. Following Jesus will cost you everything. But it will be worth it. It will be worth it. He is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that so many of us in this room have found him to be worth anything that we have had to give up in order to follow him. And we've actually found life by giving up those things. We found that the nuts we were carrying didn't satisfy as we thought they would. And we found freedom and life in your name. And we are so thankful for that. And we thank you for him. And we pray, Lord, for all of us, whether we are Christians at the moment or whether we are still weighing this up, that you would help us see the supremacy, the excellence, the ultimate worth of Jesus, the sun in the solar system. Would you help us see his beauty and brilliance? Would you help other things fade into the background as we consider him? And would you help us, where needed, challenge and even confront those we love with that reality so that people might encounter the joy of knowing Jesus for themselves? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.